You all are in the book of Acts, and so uh, we're going to be in the book of Acts together for a little bit. So if you have a Bible, would you open up to Acts chapter 20? We're going to be in verses 17 through 21. 17 through 21. Um, Before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about last words. I want to talk about the opportunity to give some last words to others. Have you considered... At all, many of you are young. I am, I think I'm kind of young. I'm 35 years old. I have four children. Uh, And when you have four children, you are always trying to think about like like legacy and what am I going to leave them with? And am I am I going to be a good father? And are they what what kind of things are they going to say about me? And one of the things I'm personally terrified of is leaving my kids after being frustrated with them. And this is, okay, this is not a rational thought, so forgive me this, but like getting into a terrible accident and then having them the rest of their lives, the last moment I had with them being like a dad looking at me with some frustration in his eyes. Like it's very common for people to say they want to die in their sleep. How many of you want to die in your sleep? That sounds like a decent way to go out, right? Okay, a few of you. Um, How many of you that you don't want to die in your sleep? Just by others of you. I absolutely do not want to die in my sleep. It's, to me, it sounds horrible. It sounds like the worst way to go, right? And here's why, because I, here's what I want. This is crazy. But what I want is the opportunity to be able to come before my family and to leave them with some last words. I want to be able to say some things to them that they can hold on to so that when I pass away, they can, they, they can cherish those. And as a pastor who's been a pastor for a long time, I can tell you it's heartbreaking when, when people lose their father or lose their mother and they didn't make it to the hospital in time or they didn't get that last interaction and they almost feel robbed of something. And so for, for me, like I want to have a last parting moment and, uh, and, and you ought to be thinking about that. I hope that if you're married or someday if you're going to get married, when you fight with your spouse, to always try to make peace as quickly as you can, to reconcile quickly because, you know, you don't want that moment where you don't want things to end with discord. It's not good for you. It's not for them. So, so it's good to have some last words. And the reason I talk about good last words or thinking through last words is because the text we're looking at tonight in the book of Acts Paul, who's in Miletus, he thinks he's gathered the Ephesian elders at a church he's spent some time at, and he thinks this is the last time he's going to see them. He expects that he's not, he's going to head to Jerusalem, but he, he doesn't think he's going to see them again. And so in the, in the text in Acts we're in tonight, you get this really unique moment. You get Paul talking to some elders that he has served with. He has called them to himself and he wants to give them some last words. And I think it's important because the last words he wants to give are words that start off talking about who he has been to them and what kind of leader he has been to them. And the reason I think that's important is because if you read the book of Acts, what you can't miss is that it's a small group of people who just are surrendered to the Spirit of God. And in their surrendering to the Spirit of God, God moves powerfully in them, creating just a movement of the kingdom. And I would hope, I think I'm not alone in that, in saying that we, uh, you a collective, us at Risen, what we really, really want is a movement of the gospel on the West Side in such a way that it creates a kind of revival for people to come to know Jesus. Jesus, to know his power, to know the hope that's found in him. And and that's a really good thing. Amen. Amen. All right. Good. All right. Amen. Amen. 
Yeah, there you go. That's better. So, so we need, so we want the gospel to move in power and we trust that the Lord can do that. And, and, but we also trust that, that what God needs in that are people who are offering their lives to him and that he desperately needs what the Lord wants is good Christian leadership. Amen. Amen. You all have two great Christian leaders. Let me tell you, I might say this at the beginning and the end, do not leave tonight without telling Pastor Lorenzo how much you love and care for him. Please do not do that. He is an amazing leader. He loves you guys more than many of you ever know. And as pastors, we hear all the time, like the mistakes we make, we hear it all the time. Very rarely do people come alongside us and just say, hey, I want to let you know I love you. I'm so thankful for you. Don't miss that. So Paul is in, we're in Acts chapter 20. This is the gospel as it's moving forward in the book of Acts. uh, Paul's going to talk to the church in Ephesus about what it looks like to be a good Christian leader. And I want us to think, are you, as people who care about being missionaries on the West Side, are you committed to being good Christian leaders? We've all experienced, I think, some bad leadership uh, at some point in our life. And we want, to, we want to be faithful to God and we want God to use us. We want to grow into maturity. God doesn't want to keep anyone in a state of immaturity. Amen? Amen. All right. So Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 21. We'll read the text first and then we'll kind of walk through it a bit. This is what it says. Now from Miletus, he, that's Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you in the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that this is God's word for us. Let's dive into it this evening. In verse 17, it starts off with Paul saying, or with Paul sending for, uh, to Ephesus for the elders to come to him. And the question is, why does Paul call them to him? Paul has been traveling. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He probably doesn't want to slow his trip down. It's quite possible that a ship is leaving and he wants to make sure he catches that ship. It's also possible at this point in the text that Paul has collected quite a bit of money for the church in Jerusalem and he doesn't want to be traveling because that could end up in you know, getting attacked and losing that money. Maybe he doesn't feel incredibly safe. So we don't really know the reason why Paul calls for them to come to him, but it's about 20 to 30 miles away, and they do come to him, and he wants to warn them. If you read the whole text, because you guys are going through Acts, so you're going to get here, you'll find that he wants to kind of warn them, because as a pastor of this church, he sees the future, and he looks ahead, and he is concerned that there might be some things ahead that are going to be a little bit bumpy for them. So he wants to warn them, but before he warns them, he wants to remind them of his example, and he wants to give them some advice, and he wants to see them one last time. 
I was heartbroken this week. Um, I mean, mildly heartbroken, not devastated, but mildly heartbroken at the news that uh, Chester Bennington had took his own life by hanging. It was uh, kind of came out of nowhere. And that's a hard thing to hear. And I'm sure that many of you experienced that. I don't know how many of you experienced what I did, which was I started walking through or thinking through the lyrics of some of those old Linkin Park songs and going like, oh my gosh, there was so much um, depression and heartbreak built into the lyrics that I didn't see until I was to them. But the thing that broke my heart is that it came out that not only did he take his own life, but that he didn't leave a note. And I thought, my, it's so heartbreaking. Like, it's, I mean, it's just the whole thing is just absolutely tragic. But, but he, didn't, he didn't have last words to give to his family. He didn't have last words. And so, uh, so, so I just, I think about the importance of last words. Paul has grabbed, he's brought these elders to him and he thinks, he thinks this is the last time he's gonna see him. We don't experience this at all anymore, right? You can probably... You can probably, within about an hour of work on your phone, contact an old ex-girlfriend or boyfriend from like high school, right? And like get them a message in some fashion. But if you think of like our grandparents' generation, like they would just see people and they would go, nice, nice seeing you. Like I, maybe I will never see you again. Like, and they would just, we're just okay with this. Like, you're going to go that way. I'm going to go this way. And that's kind of the end of our relationship forever. We don't live like that, right? We think that like everything is connected. But for Paul, he has this sense, like I'm leaving. I think I could end up dying. They're in trouble. Please come to me. I've got some last words. So in verse 18, when they came to him, he said to them, I love he says this, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. So he says, you know how I lived. You know how I lived. You know how I lived. This isn't a statement of arrogance. Paul's not attempting to be arrogant here. He's not trying to sort of puff himself up. He is confident. Paul is confident because he believes that he has the whole time lived in such a way that they have seen Jesus in him and that in their interaction with him, he has regularly proclaimed this good news, the good news that hope really exists, love really exists, beauty really exists, salvation really exists. We can be, you can be set free from your sins in Jesus. That's good news, amen? And he's been proclaiming this. It's, it's uh, popular now. There's a phrase that, it, it was an old phrase, but it feels like it's making a comeback, which is to preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. And I don't think that's possible. Uh, I think that the, it's, it's not the first half that I have an issue with, preach the gospel at all times. It's that second half, which is that, it, you know, it, if necessary, use words. I don't think it's possible to not preach the gospel um, uh, without words. You need words for the proclamation of the gospel. But there's also an overcorrection to that, which is this misnomer that our life doesn't proclaim anything. Your life proclaims something. Your life to the people around you, in your families, in your workplaces, it points to something. It points to what you trust. It points to what you worship. And Paul used his life and pointed to Jesus. So I would just start by saying the first key, what does good Christian leadership look like? Well, good Christian leadership points others to God. That's where it centrally points that when people look at Paul's life, he can say, you know how I lived? You know where I directed everything that I did? My life pointed to God. What does your life point to? Everyone in this room would acknowledge we desperately need good Christian leaders on the West Side. 
right? Not so that they can build the kingdom apart from God, but because out of their faithfulness, God will build the kingdom and he will use them, even though we fail, even though we make mistakes, even though we don't get it right. We need good Christian leadership. And so I want you to think, what does your life point to when people interact with you? Where do they, where do they look? Is it about you? Is your life about you and your goodness and your greatness and your success and your principles and your followers and your style and your fashion and your choices and your decisions? Is it, is it about you? Does it stop with you? Or does your life ultimately point to God? Where does your life point to? Paul Paul had been with them for a long time, so he could say, he could say, you know, hey, you know how I live. In Acts chapter 20, verse 31, which is in a little bit here, we're not going to cover this text, but he says to them, the same people, be alert, remembering that for three years, I did not seize night or day to admonish everyone with tears. He says, I was with you day and night for three years. Three years, you saw my life. Often people are confused by who Christians are. And too often, Christians, we are, we're sort of shy about our Christian faith, and it doesn't point anywhere outside of ourselves. It certainly doesn't point to God. And for Paul, it absolutely does. Paul, he, he didn't live two separate lives. He didn't have a public life and a private life. He didn't have a collective on Sundays life and a whatever I want to do the rest of the week kind of life. He didn't have one version of himself that he, he acted a particular way when he was around the community of faith and then he acted a completely different way with others. He was with them and he can say with confidence, look at my life and look where my life points to. I believe that there are people in our city who are, would be, who are praying to God to show them some people who not only believe that Jesus is risen from the dead, but live like Jesus is risen from the dead. And I believe with all my heart that there are people in your life that will look to you and want to know, do you believe it, not just with your mouth, but with your life? My prayer is that that would be true for you. So, so I'd say, maybe say it this way, good Christian leadership is transparent before others. It doesn't point one way, one time, and point to Christ another time. For Paul, what you see is what you get. And he's not perfect. Make no mistake, no one is calling you to be perfect or saying that you have to be perfect or that you can't receive or get it right if you're not perfect. I am saying that we're called to be dedicated and that the church desperately needs good Christian leadership. Amen? Sometimes we think, oh, like the leaders should do this. Yeah, we need good Christian leadership, so I'm going to pray that the leaders in my life are good Christians. My argument is that we need every single one of us, especially, I think, am I right here to say that a collective, part of the teaching of collective is that everybody is a missionary. Is that right? If that's right, let me get an amen. Amen. Okay, so Paul is a missionary, right? He is a missionary. He is advancing the gospel. We need missionaries to be good Christian leaders. Paul uh, is, he, he lives in a transparent way, and that's not always easy. I recently, as a pastor, one of the things that I have to do, and this is a strange sort of thing to do, is um, I submit every, I submit my budget, what my wife and I spend on everything, we submit it to the elder board of our church. 
And so we give other Christians in our lives an opportunity to look into our checkbook and to be able to, we, we literally kind of say, hey, look at this. I just did this recently. It's incredibly difficult in a culture today where everything's individualistic and private to say, hey, here's everything I spend money on. Would you critique it for me? Would you, would you look at it for me? I mean, I stand on this stage every week and proclaim the good news, so I'm gonna invite you into looking at this. Do I live it with my finances? And it's very, very hard to do, but our desire is to be transparent. We want to be honest. And so we want to open up our checkbook to, to others in the church. We wanna do that as a family. That's not a requirement, but I, I'll tell you, you should think, are you ashamed of your checkbook? Are you ashamed of what you spend money on? I wish that every Christian, this would be, you know, brutal, but if, can you imagine if we handed over our, check, our checking account or our checkbook, our calendar, and our search history? Um, if we gave those three things to other people in our lives, um, I think we would all be weeping over our sin and at the same time proclaiming the goodness of a God who has rescued even people like us. Amen? Amen. Right. So transparency is a good thing. Don't be afraid of transparency. Don't be two-faced. I know that, that collective works very hard. You guys work hard as a church to try to make sure you don't live two-faced. Don't be two-faced. Uh, verse 19. So Paul says, I've been with you every day. Then he says this, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. That word servant that Paul points out here, it's, uh, it's, it gives this idea of a, like Paul sees himself as a bond servant to the Lord. He, he is not a reluctant participant in the mission of God. He, 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 didn't, he, he literally did not think that his life belonged to him. He believed that what Jesus had done was so good, so amazing, so wonderful, so beautiful that Christ had covered not just like the easy sins, but his deepest, darkest sins, that he had plunged into the depth of him and loved him even at the depth of his own sinfulness. And that in that, he was forgiven and saved. And so he gave his whole life to Christ. Good Christian leadership includes this idea that we're not... We live like our lives belong to God and not belong to ourselves. Too often we think that Christ gets a part of our life. He gets a part of our Sunday. He gets a part of our money. He gets a part of our time. He gets a part of our comfort. God, we'll be uncomfortable in this way, but not in that way. God, we will, um, we'll, hold, we'll give you a little bit of power, but we'll retain as much as possible. God, we will um, honor you with our sexuality when people ask us and when they are, don't ask us, then we will do what we want. And instead, Paul has this idea of, God, you can have it all. I am your servant. And he says that he's serving the Lord as a servant with all humility and with tears. I wanna start by talking about humility. Good Christian leadership is marked by humility. What is humility. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That is what we are called to do. There was a film that came out, it was a couple years ago, um, uh, done by the, the guys at the Lonely Island, and it was called Pop Star. And there's a track in that, how many of you remember this, a track that's called I'm So Humble. Any of you familiar 
that song, I'm So Humble? Yeah, some of you are ashamed to raise your hand. It's okay. We're all, we're all sinners here. We can confess. We can repent. God forgive us. He's good. Um, so yeah, there's a song, and it's, it's got a line in it that I think is so funny. And the line is, my belly is full from all the pride that I swallow, um, which is the most uh, kind of self-congratulatory way of, of living. Uh, good Christian leadership is marked by humility. Here's what we believe as Christians. Here's what we proclaim. We proclaim that God, who rules and reigns in heaven, and sits at the, Jesus, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who has access to all the riches of God, leaves all of that and is born into a broken world, born into a young virgin girl, born into poverty. And then from that moment, which is maybe the biggest step down anybody can make is the incarnation, he just continues to go down mistreated and being rejected and being mocked and being humiliated and then ultimately being crucified. Why? Because of his great love for you and for me. God has humbled himself. Paul sees this. He knows this. And Paul just sees, man, God has humbled himself. I will humble myself too. God thought of others. I will think of others too. He, he doesn't live with the sense of people owe me something. He lives with the sense of I owe people something because Jesus has given so much to me. Good Christian leadership seeks to lower itself. Do people see you as humble? Some of you are like, yeah, the most, the most. <laughs> people tell me all the time how humble I am. Do people think of you as humble? Good Christian leadership is marked by humility. But notice again, it's not just humility, he says, it's with tears. Good Christian leadership is marked by tears. Why the tears? Was Paul just a crier? Um... There was a politician that was the, in charge of the House of Representatives uh, a few years ago. His name was John Boehner. How many of you know I'm talking about by show of hands? Yeah. And he was famous for what? Crying. crying. He cried all the time, right? Like every time they'd interview him, he would just kind of naturally cry. Is that what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, listen, I was with you, and so I just get really emotional, and I cry all the time. No, absolutely not, right? Jesus had said in his Beatitudes that blessed are those who mourn. And in the Beatitudes text, it's not mourning over the loss of a loved one. It's mourning over the sin in our lives and in the world. And Paul says that I serve the Lord with all humility and with tears. So our job in Christian leadership is to enter into other people's lives, not to stand above and to shout commands down, but to enter in alongside of one another. And I will tell you, if you have never cried over your sin or the sins of others in your life, I do not believe you have adequately viewed your sin or their sin. Sin should bring us to tears because it breaks our relationship with God, breaks our relationship with self, breaks our relationship with others, breaks our relationship with creation. And too many people think that Christian leadership is I tell you what to do. Instead, Paul says, it's I enter into your life and I will walk with you. If you want to be a church where God moves in power, you had better be committed to entering into one another's lives and walking with one another, mourning each other's sin and declaring the good news that that sin is forgiven again 
and again and again and again and again and again and again. Too many of us want holiness for others, but we don't want to know the pain of others. We have to mourn sin with people. Remember the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it keeps us from ever thinking too highly of ourselves because we're sinful, but it keeps us from ever thinking too lowly of ourselves. God has forgiven us out of his great love. And so Paul says this, he says, I've served with humility and with tears all in the midst of trials, all in the midst of trials. So not only is good leadership marked by tears, but he says uh, that it's, it's trials of what happened to me through the plots of the Jews. If you've been reading the book of Acts and following along, uh, Paul has had tons of resistance. People have rioted against Paul. The Jews have uh, stoned Paul. They have poisoned the minds of others against Paul. They've stirred up women to get him out of town. I mean, this is like real kinds of persecution that he has faced. And he has endured it again and again and again. Good Christian leadership is prepared for trials. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 10, he said, he said this. He said, you will be hated for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Good Christian leadership is prepared for trials. Why is this important? Because some of us are so used to having it easy. Your theology or your idea might be, man, God's moving powerfully and the West Side's gonna get better and better and it's just gonna get easier and easier and easier to be Christian and it's gonna be awesome. Man, I hope you're right. At the same time, I would not prepare that way. I don't know how much you have been paying attention to what's happening in our culture, but it is my conviction that our culture has moved from a place, particularly on the West Side, that was sort of, passively supportive of Christian ideas to actively hostile to Christian ideas. And so good Christian leadership is prepared for trials. It's part of the life that we expect is going to come. Trials are a part of the Christian life. I hope that you are prepared and ready for trials. Paul does not expect, he never expects in his missionary journeys that things are going to be easy, nor should you. Nor should we. Verse 20. He says, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Next principle I want to draw here. Good Christian leadership doesn't shrink or cower. We have to understand that it will be easy as trials come and difficulty comes, it becomes even easier to sort of pull back, right? To sort of pull away from, to hesitate to say the right thing, to hesitate to say the good thing. And I think that real hesitation comes about when we forget that the good news is really good news. When we forget that we have to taste it before we can share it. We feel like we need to water down the good news of Jesus because we think that it will make us feel better or viewed more highly. Paul says, look, I never shrank from declaring to you anything that was profitable. I love that he says this because I wanna add this caveat. Good Christian leadership is helpful even if it's hurtful. 
The word profitable in Greek is the word simpharo. It means good for someone, useful for someone, helpful for someone. And we live in a culture today that thinks that anything that is hurtful is bad. You may have experienced this, right? People have this sense of like anything that's difficult or challenge, challenging is bad. Recently, my wife um, has had a, a problem with a hernia. Um, she just recently got surgery to fix it, but a few months ago, uh, she came home and she'd had no problems. And then all of a sudden, she felt intense pain around her stomach area, just like brutal pain. And she was writhing in pain. And I didn't know what to do. And we have four kids, and it's late at night. So I do what I would do. Well, this is what we do. I call up a guy in our church who is an emergency room doctor. And I say, um, hear this. And she, listen to my wife, right? As she's writhing in pain, what do I do about it? And he goes, well, tell me about it. And I go, well, she's got this thing. She's had a hernia for a long time. And I don't know what to do. It's, it's painful. And he says, it sounds like she has an incarcerated hernia, which is a hernia that slips out and then gets trapped on the outside, right? Slips out through the intestine and gets trapped. And I go, what are my options? And he goes, do you have two options? One, you can push it back in. Two, you can come straight to the ER as soon as possible. Now, I've got four children, so going to the ER as soon as possible is not really an as soon as possible because my oldest is 10 years old and doesn't have a cell phone. So that's not going to be a smart decision. I'm going to leave the kids, come back. They're not going to be there. Child Protective Services is going to take them, right? You can't leave four kids alone in Santa Monica. So what do I do? So i got to figure out, okay, so do I call a friend, have a friend come over, watch the kids? Do I take my wife, and do I then take her to the ER, and then is that what we do? Or do I go to her and say, honey... You're not going to like this, but I'm going to have to push this thing back in, right? And she's like, she's having trouble, and I go, what do you want me to do? And she's like, okay, I want you to push it back in. And I'm like, all right, here we go. So I walk up, and the moment I, even the moment I put any pressure on it, she karate chops my hand away um, <laughs> as hard as she can. And I took offense to that because I felt like it was a demonstration that she didn't love me, right? I was like, who, what are you doing? Like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to help you. Let me do it again, right? I was like, Babe, you really, you can't, like, we got in order, this has got to be team effort, right? I can't, I'm going to do this, but you got to join. She's like, okay, okay, I get it. And again, as soon as I pushed on it, I mean, just horse kicked me, right? Just like, get out of here. And I stood back and was like, all right, fine. I called a friend and said, come over, we got to take my wife to the ER, right? But the point I'm trying to make is pretty clear, which is that we make this mistake of thinking that every kind of help um, that hurts is automatically bad. And I think that's horrible, there are people in your life, Christians in your life, who are doing some things and you've got to rebuke them, which means you've got to come alongside them in love and you've got to say, listen, I know that it's probably going to be hard for you to hear what I'm going to say to you, but you have to know that it's because I love you. You can't continue to do this. It's not what God wants for you. It's not the best thing for you. And we live in a culture that says, wait a second, you know, mind your own business. You shouldn't say that to me. I get to do what I want. But good Christian leadership is helpful even when it's hurtful. Paul says, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. If it was profitable, if it was useful, if it was beneficial, I'm saying it to you even if you think that it's going to be a little bit painful. God does this with us all the time. Right? Sometimes we're headed in a particular direction and God makes it harder and harder for us to go that direction. Why? Because sometimes God wants us to go back and head another direction. God is against us for us because he wants to take us into a new place, into a new direction. So not all help, not only, not all um, things that are profitable or helpful uh, are always the things that are not hurtful. Sometimes they are 
uh, they are hurtful, even if they are helpful. And so you must go out of your way to declare the gospel. You must go out of your way to be loving and kind and gracious. But you have to understand that sometimes we say the helpful thing and that will be received as the hurtful thing. I'm just gonna, real quick, I just wanna say this. I can think of almost nothing that is gonna try to shut the Christian proclamation down more quickly than a society that declares that the Christian proclamation, as good as it is, is hurtful and therefore shouldn't be allowed to be said. We cannot allow that. We have to say what is true because it is good. Paul says, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that's profitable and teaching you in public from house to house. I wanna point out something else that Paul says. He says, public and from house to house. Good Christian leadership is public and private. Great Christian leaders are not always great preachers. That's what, uh, but, but we have a tendency of lifting up those who are very good publicly. But Paul says, I declared what was profitable with you, both de declaring it publicly and in your life, house to house. We tend to buy books from people who have big churches. We tend to buy books from people who are very good at public speaking. I can tell you that the, the people you want to strive to be like are not the people who have giant crowds and audiences. The people that you want to strive to be like are the people who enter into your life, who walk with the ordinary person, who struggle and suffer with the ordinary person. It's a good thing to be able to speak in public. Can you do the one-on-one? -on -one? Are you willing to do the one-on-one -on -one in people's lives? Good Christian leadership can't just be about a public show. It can't just be you at an office meeting standing up on your chair. It can't just be you on a soapbox. It's got to be in the lives of people one-on-one. -on -one. Lastly, verse 21, Paul says, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice that good Christian leadership invites everyone to the party. Good Christian leadership invites everyone to the party. We are Christians and we hold to this message that the good and gracious creator of all entered into human history and offers to everyone salvation comes alongside and invites everybody to the party. We are not looking for the coolest people. We are not looking for the hippest people. We are not looking for the oldest or the youngest people. To be Christian is to be the kind of person who says, I'm willing to open up my life to everybody because everybody needs the gospel, not just people who look, think, and act like me. You may have noticed that it seems like our country is more divided than it ever has been before. We're divided along political lines, religious lines, racial, racial lines, class lines. We're divided everywhere. No one talks to each other. No one listens to each other. No one reaches across the aisle. Sure, that's fine for them. It's not for you. You are Christians. Your message has been handed to you and it is to be offered to everyone. It's to be offered to all people. God places people in your life as they desperately need the good news. Paul says, in his own way, I have offered this message to everybody, to Jews and Greeks. Lastly, in verse 21, good Christian leadership declares the best news. We declare the world's best news. We have been entrusted with the world's greatest message. The world's greatest message, the most hopeful message, is not the paleo diet. The world's most hopeful message is not a free membership at SoulCycle. 
right? We have been entrusted with the world's greatest message, and that is that the things that we most long for can be found in Christ. And we live in a society where we think, no, 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 you don't understand. If we just get to five years down the road, 10 years down the road, accumulate enough, if we succeed enough, then we will be fulfilled. And we hear story after story of people who we would all go, why aren't they fulfilled? Not be fulfilled. And why? It's because what we most long for, that all of our desires most find their answer in one person and one person alone, and that's Jesus. And you're the people that God has entrusted to get that message out into the world. That everything we're looking and longing for can ultimately be found in Jesus. We have been given the world's best news. We have been given the gospel. The good news that we are sinful and broken. We are fractured and enslaved to our sin. But we can be forgiven. That we are loved. We can be saved. And we can live with God both now and forevermore. This is the world's greatest news. This is the hope of the world. Now, I've listed a bunch of things about what Christian leadership looks like. It points towards God. It's honest before others. It's humble. It's tearful. It's courageous in trials. It doesn't hesitate. It's, it's public enough for everyone, but it's private enough to come alongside of people. It's inclusive of all, and it delivers the world's greatest news. And when we compare our lives to these characteristics, I would think that none of us are going to succeed. All of us look at this and go, that seems like a lot. I can't do that. And the answer is, you're right, you can't. But I want you to see in closing this simple idea. Good Christian leadership that points towards God is honest before others, is humble, is tearful, is courageous in trials, doesn't hesitate, it's public enough for everyone, private enough for everyone to come alongside, inclusive of all, and delivers the world's greatest news. That's all demonstrated in Jesus. Jesus is what good Christian leadership looks like. And so we have been on the receiving end of that. Jesus points us towards God. Jesus was transparent. Jesus was humble. Jesus cries with us in our sins. Jesus was courageous in facing his trials. He was public enough for preaching, but private enough to be a part of every one of our lives. He is inclusive of all, and he has and holds the world's greatest news in and of himself. We know this in Christ. And so we give thanks and praise to God. Here's what I want you to leave with this evening. First, I want you to think about how your life stacks up to what I have declared as good Christian leadership. And I want you to choose one thing that you'd like to take a step forward on. Secondly, I'd like you to pray for your leaders. Pray for Lorenzo and pray for Casey. And I pray for those of you who will be leaders in this church as you continue to pursue faithfulness. I hope that God raises many leaders in this church who would point the world to Jesus. But more than any of that, I want you to see God's goodness. I want you to see the length that he has gone through in order to redeem you, to save you because he loves you. I want you to see his example of leadership, and I want you to lean on him in your successes and your failures, knowing that his grace and his forgiveness and his spirit is the only thing that will empower you to be the church you want to be on the West Side.
We need good Christian leaders, but we don't need a bunch of people who try to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. We need a bunch of people who will throw themselves at the feet of the king, who have said, we see in you what it looks like to be a good and gracious leader. Lord, teach us to be the same. We need a God who will turn to us, who will see us in our sin and our brokenness and our frustration and, and the enslavement we have. And we need a God who will set us free and a people who will then turn back to him and say, out of our freedom, we will give you our lives because you are good. Not because we're good, but because you are good. And we'll give everything you have so that everybody in the world knows how good you are. May you, more than anything else, know the goodness of God. That, and make sure you love on Lorenzo. Let's pray.